It's good to see you all here this morning. What a blessing it is to be able to come together to worship God and to be able to worship in a place like this where we're out of the rain and out of the sogginess of it all and just being able to be here together with one another is always a, a tremendous blessing to us as, as followers of Jesus Christ. Well, as you know, uh, you probably have already determined in your mind that because of the threat of this inclement weather that we are having, that uh, we're not going to be having our, um, our acapella in the park event this, this evening. Uh, about a week ago, we were, I was in a, sitting in an elders and deacons meeting, and one of the deacons asked across the room to me and said, hey, uh, what's plan B if, if for instance, if the weather is bad? I said, it's not going to be bad. I've looked at the seven-day forecast. You know, on my weather map app thing, and it says that on this day, it's going to be 83 degrees, and it's going to be sunny out, and it's going to be a beautiful day. So there is no plan B. And then it came around about Wednesday, and I looked at the weather map again. The app said it's a 40% chance of rain. And I thought, okay, well, if it's 40% chance of rain, that means there's 60% chance it won't. So I was kind of staying positive, and, and then came a Thursday, and on Thursday I checked the app again, and this time the app said there's 83% or 90% chance that it's going to rain on Sunday, and that there's a possibility for thunderstorms in the evening. And, and I thought, okay, well, that's 90%. I better tell the elders about this. So we had an elders meeting that evening, and I was sharing with the guys. and said, look, here's what's happened. I went down to the story I've told you, and I said, like this afternoon, it was like 90% chance that it was going to rain, but I've been praying about it, and it's down to 70% now. And so I said, but we better have a plan B, and so I shot them a plan B. And so we do have a plan B that we're going to uh, be doing. Uh, we're going to do what we, we've done all, we're planning on doing all along, except we're just going to do it at the, at the building. So instead of it being barbecue at the park, it's going to be barbecue at the building. And so at 4 o'clock this afternoon, we're going to have a barbecue here. And, and listen, we haven't got together as a congregation for like almost two years in terms of an event like this. And so I want to encourage you to be back here this afternoon. Listen, we bought like 250 hamburgers and about 150 hot dogs and, and all the fixings that go along with it. We're going to have games. We're going to have cornhole in the, in the, probably in the hallways and out in the foyer. And we'll have ping pong. But listen, we're going to have a good time. And so really, let me encourage you to uh, be back here this evening. And then, of course, at 6 o'clock, not 5 o'clock, oh, 6 o'clock, we're going to have our worship and praise uh, acapella. But instead of it being acapella in the park, it's going to be acapella here at the building. And we're, we're going to have the singing groups. We're going to have a, a kids group that is going to be singing some songs to us right up here. And we're going to have a, a men's group that have been working really hard at putting together songs that they're going to share with us. And then we have an open invitation group of both men and women who are going to be singing a series of songs as well. And so we're going to have some groups that are going to be singing. And then we're going to spend some time in just singing together with one another as a, a congregation. And it's going to be really impactful. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that later. In the meantime, let me do this here is I bought a bunch of these that we're going to put up all around the park, community evening of singing acapella in the park, Kleiner Park at the Banshell. I'm selling these for $12 each. <laughs> I know, it's a shameless plug. But anyway, so anyway, so we have all these, I mean, we had all kinds of things to hand, I thought that was falling over for a second. We had all things to hand out and, and brochures and, and cards. And listen, we'll find another way to do this down the line, okay? We'll figure out a way in which we can reach out to our uh, community. As I was saying to you that, when, you know, when it comes down to spreading the good news of Jesus, we can do it a lot of ways. The Lord is obviously allowed us to preach the word and to teach the word as a means of spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. 
And then, of course, there's the written word that we can read. We can, you know, we can have articles in magazines and in news uh, um, uh, bulletins and newsletters and all kinds of ways that we can get the message out through the written word. Uh, but one of the ways that sometimes we take for granted is singing. Singing is a powerful thing. And, and if you listen to just our singing this morning, it was incredible. I mean, it was just, it was beautiful to be sitting over there and listening to you sing. And, and there was times when I would just pause and listen to you and it sounded beautiful. And I know it's pleasing to God's ears. And, and I know this evening, it's going to be the same thing. We're going to be singing a lot of, uh, uh, spend a lot of time in singing. And so again, I just want to encourage you to be a part of that. So I know you have thought about this, but I just want to ask the question, have you thought about just how much God really loves you? That God loved you so much that even in the midst of our, our sin, the wages of sin should be that we should die because of it, but because of God's incredible mercy and because of his incredible grace and, and love, uh, even in the midst of that sin, he sent his son into the world to, to die for us, to redeem us so that we might live forever. And you're all familiar with John, the third chapter and verse 16, almost every, it's almost a universal passage, but for God so loved the world, and that world that he's talking about is you and, and he's talking about me, but God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's a beautiful passage of scripture, and so it's no wonder that it's quoted and thought about so often. Another one that's familiar is Romans 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of this great love that he has shared, showered upon us, something happened to each and every one of us. If you go over to the epistle that was written to the Ephesians in the second chapter, there in the midst of a section that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith not of yourselves or any of the works that you could do, but because of the gift of God, he's made us special. And in verse 10 says, you know, that because we're in Christ, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And, and what that is saying to us is that we are God's masterpiece. That word workmanship, if you were to look at the original name, it means to be a created one. And so we were created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship. There's something uniquely special about us in every sense of the word. And so when you look at that, just that, that per verse alone, it tells you you're special. But when you look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, where it says, if any man is in Christ or if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Another pastor says, or Trish says, you are a new creature, and there says that you are special, so we are a new creation. The old have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We become God's masterpiece, something incredibly uh, wonderful. We're his work of art. In 1463, the uh, city council of Florence, Italy, they came together, and they said, you know, we want something to really stand out in our our city. We want to put ourselves on the map, and so we want to have a, a, a huge monument uh, sculptured, and we want it to be placed out in front of City Hall. And so they began to talk about it, and they said, you know what, we want a, a, something beautiful like that, but we, we want it to be of a biblical character in the neoclassical kind of art kind of thing that showed the, the natural beauty of, of just God's creation. And so they commissioned a fellow by the name of Dushi, uh, and Augustino de Dushi, and, and they asked, they, they, they commissioned him to 
carve this sculpture out, and he agreed to the terms of it. And so he went outside the city of Carrera, and there he uh, outlined a large 19-foot um, piece of stone out of white marble. And so they began carving on that white marble, and when it was done, they went to re retrieve it, and when they went to retrieve it, it fell, and when it fell, it caused a huge fracture down one side of the marble stone. And so Duchier became extremely upset about that, and he said about this piece of stone, he says, it's absolutely useless. I want another. And the city father says, no, that's not going to happen. And so they refused to do so, and the result of that is, is that 19-foot you know, piece of white marble uh, with this fracture down the site, laid at the bottom of that quarry and was not used for 38 years. And then in 1501, the city council, probably a new group, came together and said, you know what, we want to have this sculpture still done. We want something that's unique, that's beautiful, that puts our city on the map. And so they began looking around, and they found a son of an official. And they asked him if he'd be willing to take on this ambitious project of using this 19-foot this slab of marble, white marble, and that has been fractured, and to make the sculpture, carve the sculpture. Uh, his name was Michelangelo. He was a, just a 26-year-old man, but he had lots of energy. He had lots of vision of things. He had a, this tremendous uh, imagination and he had all kinds of skills, and he agreed to do so, that he would take that fractured piece of marble and that he would... He would, you know, make a sculpture. And so for three years in his workshop, in back of that cathedral, he worked on this incredible statue. It took him three years, and when it was done, it took 49 men for five days to move the sculpture from that workshop in back of the cathedral to City Hall to get it in its place. It was 14 feet tall. It was absolutely magnificent people from all over Europe came to look at this incredible sculpture and it was of course the best-known sculpture probably of Michelangelo and that is David who is supposed to be seen resting after defeating Goliath it was I mean like I said it's neoclassical and so I couldn't show it to you because I'd get fired if I showed you the length of the guy but but it's I mean when you look at just the intricacies of it the definition of the statue it's absolutely amazing and I got thinking about that and I got thinking about how God looks at us that that's what God does when he redeems us he takes people's lives who have been fractured because of sin and he works with it. he chisels at us and he polishes at us and he makes us his his creation and so when Paul said in Ephesians 2 and verse 15 that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good's work he's talking about you He's saying that you as a Christian, you're his work of art. You are his workmanship. You are his trophy, if you will. You are his masterpiece. And because we are all those things, he has placed something within each and every one of us. He has really given us a new song. And when you talk about this phrase, new song, the, word, the phrase itself is used like seven times in the Old Testament. And it's used two other times in the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 5 and then again in Revelation chapter 14, you find this word, and he gave to them a new song. Or David is maybe writing a psalm, and he says, and he gave me a, a new song. 
And in almost every case, in fact, in every case, when you talk about a new song being placed within the soul of a person or within the heart or the mind of a person, it's talking about a person who has, one, either been delivered away from sin, their fracturedness, or it's a person that's been delivered from oppression or tribulation. And sometimes it's all of those things wrapped up into one. And it talks about this new song that has been given to those who are saved, who now stand victorious because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we saw a little bit of that last week when I talked to you about a new song briefly out of Psalm 40. There, uh, there David wrote, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy put, pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. And he says, and plainly we will sit and fear and put their trust in the Lord. What he's saying is, is this new song that he is going to sing, this song that's in his heart of victory, of deliverance, of maybe moving from tribulation. He said, I'm going to sing this song and it's going to impact people. It's going to make a difference in people's life. You might recall Psalm 51 which is a psalm that David writes after his sin with Bathsheba, and he's a broken man. And he says to God, if you will wash me, if you will clean me with hyssop, if you'll make me clean, then I'll tell everyone about this. I will proclaim it to everyone of how merciful you have been and how you have washed me and made me clean. And that's why he says, you've given me a new song. We too as Christians have been given a, a new song. We have been delivered from the oppression of sin. And because of that, we are God's workmanship. We're his new creation. And that's something to sing about. That's something to really talk about. And so I want to share with you this morning that which has already been read. You Ed read from Psalm 100. Did you know that Psalm 100 is actually a song? It's a 2,500-year-old song. And it's probably one of the most beautiful of all the psalms at least in my estimation i love psalm 100 psalm 100 is is called an ascent psalm some call it a missionary song and the reason why they say that is because of those who are going to be singing now no one knows who wrote psalm 100 and they really don't know actually the occasion for why it was written Okay, but most believe that it is an ascent psalm because it's talking about the people, God's people, coming to Jerusalem. As they come to Jerusalem, they catch view of the temple on the mount, and they begin to sing praises to God. They begin to sing to God. They begin to praise God. They begin to give him thanks. They begin to bless God with their voices. And so they said, well, that's a song of ascent. Some say that the psalm was written after the second diaspora, the second captivity, when the children of Israel came back from Babylonian captivity. And Cyrus the Great, that great Persian king, he sends them back, and, and they come back and they build the temple. It's not the temple like Solomon built, but nevertheless, it's still the temple. And they come back and they sing praises to it. Some have called it a missionary song. And the reason why they call it a missionary song is it's the same idea of the people coming back to the temple and they're singing praises to God, but as they approach the temple, um, the, the priest stops them at the southern, the southern gate of going into the temple. He stops them there. And he has them all turn around and face across 
the hill of a fell, if you will, out towards, if you would, the nations, the people, and they sing this song. And so the song is one that goes out to the nations. And as you look at this psalm, you'll see that idea. Let all earth, let every nation sing this. Look at psalm. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 100, if you haven't already done so. And I want you to see just some of the nuances of this psalm, because like I say, it's, it's great. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to his name. And so it's an incredible psalm. You see, there are many ways, many ways that we can show our, our love for, for God. But this psalm is talking about showing love for God through, through worship. That's what it's talking about. It's saying, how do you shower God? How do you cover an incredible God with love? And the answer to that is through song, through praise, through singing to him, by giving thanks to him, by blessing him. A great psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve him with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Bless his name. It's incredible when you think about it. And so the psalm really is about worship. You know, when you talk about worship, worship is an interesting word. Actually, there are numerous words for the worship. There is no one word that defines what worship is. I don't know if you know that or not. In the, in the New Testament, there are a number of them. There is Eusebomai that talks about living a godly life that we offer up to God. There's Latruo that is used in Romans, the 12th chapter, that says that we offer up our bodies as living and holy sacrifice, which is our spiritual service of worship. I think the New American Standard says threskia is the word where we offer our will, our complete self to God. Proskuneo is the word for we cast ourselves forward in honor and in praise to God. Sometimes it's the idea that we feel undone and to be able to lift up our voices and to lift up our praise to God is such an incredible blessing in and of itself. And so there is no one word that just describes what worship is. There's a, a number of them that talk about the various nuances of what we offer up to God. But in this particular song, in fact, with almost all of the words that have to do with they almost all have in common the idea of, of to adore God or adoration. And in this psalm, it talks about that we praise him, we sing to him, we give thanks to him, and we bless his name. What does that mean? What does that mean to bless his name? What is it? Well, it means that we bring joy to God. We bring joy to God in honor of who he is and what his name really is about. And so there's a number of levels that have to do with worship. And the first one is this. Worship really is a mark of, of what God's people do. That's what we do is, is we worship. I mean, we give glory to God. If you were to say, what is the purpose of the church? Well, the purpose of the church is to glorify God. That's the highest. And, and we do it in a lot of different kinds of ways. But when you look at these, just a few psalms that I've just kind of put up here on the screen behind me for you, uh, you who fear the Lord, praise him. Or shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise the benefits, uh, the upright. 
Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Those are all psalms that talk about what people do. And so the people of God are expected to praise God and to give him thanks. That's just what we do. That's what we do. I was reading about a farmer who had went to a restaurant and he had ordered his meal and, and the meal was brought to him, served to him and his place before him and the old farmer, he bowed his head and he gave thanks for his meal. There's some young guys who were sitting off to the side and they were, you know, they were giggling and making fun of him and one of the young guys said, hey old man, uh, is that what you people do where you're from? And he said, well, no, son, the pigs don't. Think about that for a second. People who love God are expected to worship God, to give him thanks. There's another level. Not only are we expected to worship God, there, there's the idea that uh, where does this take place? Well, the answer to where does worship take place, the answer to that is everywhere. Everywhere. And anywhere, worship could can take place. We talk about God being taken out of schools and all that, and, and I know where they're kind of going with that idea. But the truth of the matter is, for those who are godly, for those who have given their lives to God, there's no way that they can take that out of school. No one can stop me when I was going to school from praying. No one can stop me from reading my Bible. They may not like it. They may make fun of me like those old men and the old young men against the old man, but no one can really stop that. You can worship anywhere. For instance, Abraham, he worshiped God in the wilderness. I mean, he went from the Ur of Chaldees and went down through the Fertile Crescent and ended up down in Beersheba in a wilderness. I've been to Beersheba, and there's nothing there. Lots of rock and lots of desert that is there. And that's where Abraham offered his worship to God, and so did his son Isaac, and so did Isaac's son uh, Jacob and Esau, and so did Jacob's sons, who became known as the tribe of Israel. They worship God in the wilderness. David, when he was a shepherd boy, watching after his father's sheep, he worshiped God in the hills. And Daniel, the great prophet, he worshiped God in the quietness of his room as he prayed to God, even though he knew that the king had made an edict that no one could worship any other God, except for the king alone, David, in the quietness of his room, did what he had always done. And that was he worshipped God and offered praise to God. John, the fourth chapter, as Jesus was talking to the woman at the well of Samaria, he was talking to her, and, and they, got into a, they got into a discussion about worship. And in that section of, of Scripture... He, he talks about where worship really takes place. And if you look at verse 21 and following, Jesus, you know, she says, you know, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that you have to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But... An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so what he does is he doesn't, he tells you that, you know, worship is not about just location. Worship is about the location of your heart. And so he's telling you that worship can be almost 
any place. But when you look at this psalm, there's something I think that really stands out in that worship is about going to some place to worship. I mean, think about it. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. He's talking about a, a place. Jeremiah, in the seventh chapter, he would agree with him. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered these gates to worship the Lord. He's talking about a place. Where is he talking about? Well, he is talking about the temple. Going someplace to worship God with others is a common concept of the Bible. It's just a, it, it really is. And so the temple became a place of worship to, to God. It's true that you can worship any place, but there's something special about God calling his people to enter his courts, to enter the gates for the purpose of praising God, of singing to him, of giving thanks, of, of blessing him. And so when push comes to, to shove, the major place of worship was in the temple. That's where it was. And there's something else that stands out there, and that is, is that you're made aware that worship is not a, just about us. It's not just an individual thing. It's not just about me doing it by myself. It goes far beyond that. Worship is something that is, is designed for people, that we're not to be lone rangers. It's not a Lone Ranger kind of thing where you do it in, in isolation, where we find our own little corner, but our, our, in times of the pandemic, we find our own living room or our space and, and watch worship on, on TV and, and participate as much as we can and not think about the rest of the people. There's something contagious, is what I'm saying to you, about worshiping God, and that's why the assembly is so important. Now, listen, for a year and a half as a congregation, we worshiped online. I preached to an empty auditorium. I preached in my backyard, in my living room. Clinton and Jerry did the same thing. Uh, and, and we were blessed because of that. But now we've gathered together. And it's time that we start worshiping God with one another. Now, there are ex exceptions to that. I, we understand, certainly the shepherds of this congregation understand that, you know, there are people who have, you know, preconditions they are at risk to come and put themselves among a group of people because we're not it's not like we're we don't know that COVID's still in the community okay and so there's those who say i can't risk this i can't risk this for my husband i can't risk this for my my wife and if that's so then then okay i i get it but if not then you need to break the habit because i think that's what some people have done they've got in the habit of worshiping in the home because it's really an easy place to do it. But God has called his people to enter the, the gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. He said, well, that's back then. What about now? Well, Hebrews, the 10th chapter says, listen, let us consider how to stimulate one another. Let, some translation says, let us consider how to spur one another on in a positive way. Let us consider how to, uh, to inspire one another to love and to good deeds. And then he says these words, do not forsake the assembling of, this, of ourselves, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, even more as we see the day approaching. And so there's something effective about being together with one another. And so, you know, if you're online and you're hearing this, you know, if, if you have a good reason for why you're home because of this, this virus, then God bless you. But if not, and it's just become a habit, you need to break the habit. 
You really do. You just need to break the habit. And that's just not me as the preacher saying that, okay? But the shepherds feel that way extremely strongly as well. And so, you know, let's, uh, I guess it's, we just need to be worshiping God together with one another. So we ask ourselves the question, well, well, how are we going to do this? Because there's no temple anymore. 70 AD, you know, the temple went away. Titus, especially the Roman army, they came in, they breached the walls, and they took that temple and they raised it. I mean, they brought it to the ground. And even today, if you go to the west wall of the temple, you'll see heaps of those stones that were built there by Herod the Great. It's, they're incredible. And you'll find some of those stones reconstituted maybe a mile away or more so away from the, the temple proper to some walls that were there that were erected by the crusaders. And they reconstitute some of the Herod stones. You can see them there. But I mean, the Romans, they brought that thing to the ground. And guess what? It's never been erected. Today on Temple Mount, there is a, a, a Muslim mosque Islam mosque that is there called the uh, the temple uh, the temp, the dome of the rock uh, mosque. It's there. It's got a big gold and beautiful top to the thing, but they haven't erected the temple. I don't know as they ever will. In fact, I don't believe they'll ever erect the temple again. So, so the question might be in our brains: Is this well? So is the church building now the new temple? And the answer is, is absolutely not. The church building is just a place that we gathered together so we can get out of the rain get out of the, the sun it's where we assemble together to worship god to together and so we make up the temple today the the church is that you understand that the church is not build the building right the church you already know this the church is you the church is me when we gathered we are the church and we're, we're more than that. We're the temple of God. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 22 says. We're fellow citizens with the saints and are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so it's true that, you know, we have taken our building and we have designated it or dedicated it for the purpose of worshiping God, of assembling together, but the building is not the church. We are the church, which means this. If we'd gathered together this evening as was the plan, the church would have been there. When, if we'd been able, if the weather had permitted and we'd gathered at Kleiner Park in front of that band shell and we gathered there to sing praises to God, to bless his name, to spread the good news, the church would have been there. The assembly would have been happening and the temple would have moved from here to there and that would have been a good thing. That it would have been a great thing for us to be able to do that. So we don't need a church building to to worship God as a church, whenever or wherever you come together as a church, you are the holy temple of the Lord and a dwelling place for God. So church is designed to be the time when Christians assemble together to worship. And our practice is, is that you know we meet on Sunday a.m. at 9 o'clock for class, 10 o'clock for assembly, for worship. And we meet again at 5 o'clock to worship, to assemble together, uh, we, we, we do that. 
And it would have been the same if we'd got to that, you know, at 6 o'clock. Um, and when you do it right, when you do it right, people's lives are changed. People's lives are changed. That's what 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25 says. It says that, that when we worship God, collectively, we make an impact in people's lives. And they really are changed in incredible ways. Uh, and so the church, it creates an atmosphere, if you will, where newcomers, even unbelievers, are convicted of their need to worship God because we are worshiping the way we should. And so no one gets a free ride, and that's why it's, you know, our worship service is participatory. You know, you don't get to just get here, come in here, and hang out. You know, when, you, when we come to worship as Christians, we come here to participate. We participate in the singing. We participate in the prayers. We participate in the Lord's Supper. You participate as you listen to, to me. So church worship, when we gather together, pray, is to praise, to sing, to give thanks, to bless good, because that's what we as Christians do. And it's what God asks us to do. He desires that we praise him. He desires that we thank him. We, he desires that we sing to him. Someone says, well, he must be a weak God if, if he can't get away, get along without having someone do that to him. No, listen, God doesn't need our worship. I tell you who needs worship. We do. We do. We're the ones that need it. And that's why that writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembly. Don't abandon it. Don't leave it in a lurch as the habit of some, but Encourage one another even more as you see the day approaching. And singing is a great way. We teach, we admonish, we warn, we build up. All those things happen when we sing. And so singing is a powerful way to carry out the mission and to build one another up. Let me close with this last piece of information. Behind me you see a, a piece of sculpture. It's called the Rondanini Piatta. Um, most are not so familiar with this piece of art. But this was a piece of art that Michelangelo started. It was his final work. Final work. He spent 10 years carving on this, this sculpture here, this stone. It was supposed to be at the beginning of a man holding up Jesus after he had died on the cross. And so the upper figure is a man and the lower figure is Jesus Christ after he died on the cross, and the man is lifting him up. And then Michelangelo, he changed his mind about that, and he, instead of it being a man, he wanted it to be Mary, his mother. And so it began to transform from a man into a woman, and so it's now Mary that's holding up Jesus after his crucifixion. And Michelangelo, he worked on it for 10 years, but after you know, chiseling on it, he broke the rock, he broke the stone. He, he fractured it and became so frustrated with this piece of work. Ten years chiseling away at this thing, uh, he became so frustrated and upset with it that he threw the thing out into the trash heap. And one of his servants saw it out there and rescued it. Angelo, Michelangelo, he died not too long after this. He spent 10 years of the last 10 years of life doing this thing. And it was, I mean, we're talking not even years, but months. And Michelangelo would be dead, and this piece of art of his would be, would be rescued. Giorgio Vasari, was, who was a, um, 
a contemporary sculpture of that time, he says, it was stone. Uh, it was full of impurities, and it was so hard that sparks flew from under the chisel. It wasn't like David's white marble. This is a different kind of stone, and he banged on this thing here, and, and sparks flew from it, and the result of that was he fractured it. And you can see where, if you were to see the whole picture, you can see where the fractures were and how he tried to rescue it, but he wasn't able just to get it done. And then a fellow by the name of Lorenzo Dominguez, who was a contemporary with Michelangelo again, he talked about um, a sculpture's work and how when you're doing stone and chiseling on stone, he was talking about the delicacies of chiseling stone and, and some of the risks of chiseling on stone, the risk of fracturing and, and the risk of not getting it, it done. And so he offered this as a reason for why, you know, sculptors become frustrated with their work and why Michelangelo became frustrated with this uh, Rendonini Piatta. Uh, he said these words, he says, stone wants to be stone, but the artist wants it to be art. And I saw that, and it was like a light went on my head, and I thought, man, isn't that like God, isn't it? That's, that's a story of mankind. We're like that stone. We want to be who we want to be. And God wants us so much to be more than that. God wants us so much to be a piece of art, his trophy of his grace, his workmanship, creating Christ. That's what he wants, and so he chisels away at us, and he polishes us so that one day we'll be that masterpiece. And if you're a Christian, that's who you are. You are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good work. And so when you look at these two pieces of art, the Piata and David, I got to thinking, Richard, aren't you glad that God didn't give up on you? Because my life has been so fractured so many times because of my sin. Um, some people's lives are fractured and they're sinning it, and it reflects in their lives, their physical lives. But aren't you glad that he hasn't given up? Aren't you glad that he still sees us as a work of, of art? And so I would in, encourage you this morning as you think about your life, and, if you, and yet as you think about your life in terms of, say, a stone, are you fractured? And if you are, I want you to know that God can fix that. He can fix that. He can make you whole. He can make you a beautiful piece of art in his eyes. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and because of your belief, you're willing to repent of your sins. You're willing to confess Jesus as the Son of God. That's simply just acknowledge him as the Son of God, to be baptized into Christ, to be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just like those 3,000 did on the day of Pentecost. You can do that this morning. Or if you're a Christian and maybe you have been living your life and maybe you have, you know, feel fractured because of sin. You feel it and you want prayers, you know, for help, then we would encourage you to come forward so that we might help you with that in your hour of need, whatever it is, while together we stand and sing and give you opportunity.